electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Kayla Tausche. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders recorded at CNBC's live events. Today, we're talking about the Biden administration's new economic agenda, from immediate COVID relief to future economic growth. We'll hear first from Jared Bernstein, former chief economist and advisor to then-Vice President Biden, and now a member of President Biden's economic advisory team. Then a conversation with Josh Bolton, president and CEO of the Business Roundtable, providing a view from corporate America. I spoke with Bernstein and Bolton on February 3rd, 2021 at CNBC's Capital Exchange livestream. Take a listen. Jared, it's good to see you. I want to start with the discussion around stimulus. Uh, We have heard in the last several days and in just the last several minutes even from Democrats that the need continues to go big. The White House uh, has said that in recent days as well, even as Republicans suggest that something more targeted is warranted by this moment. So where do you see the most fertile ground for compromise? What does a compromise price tag look like? And what programs might be ready for an edit? Well, I think that the key uh, factor in everything you just described, Kayla, by the way, it's great to see you and great to be with you and great to have a chance for us to talk for a few minutes because usually we're all very compressed uh, on CNBC. Uh, uh, So I think the key thing there is, is the urgency with which we need to get a package out that's commensurate to the size of the dual crises that face us. And they said in the introduction, of course, controlling the virus, distributing the vaccine, and uh, finally launching a robust recovery that has eluded us thus far. It's been much more a wait and see up and down kind of affair. And there, I think, to get to your political question, uh, there's actually lots of common ground. Now, of course, there are places where we disagree and get into that. But you mean, I know Josh is going to be from the Business Roundtable. They've certainly supported components of the plan. The Chamber of Commerce, along with the American labor movement, we've got Republican mayors across the country. Donald Trump and George W. Bush, chief economists, have said this is this is the kind of plan we need to, to get into the system quickly. So in terms of sort of top line price, it's really not the way we think of it. I don't think that the right way to kind of do this arithmetic is say, do you want to be at X or half X? What we want to be at is something that's large enough to uh, address the crisis with alacrity and certainty. The danger is not going uh, too big. The danger is going too small. But the political reality, Jared, as you know well, is that X might not be possible in Congress. Half X might be a more realistic proposition. So I'm wondering what you think uh, might be, for instance, an appropriate income level for people to qualify for those direct checks, whether minimum wage could be shelved for a future package. I mean, how do you see uh, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan being whittled down into something that is realistically passable on Capitol Hill? Yeah, I think whittling down is the enemy 
of what we need to do here. Um, I think whittling, I think, you know, inaction, I think wait and see. To me, uh, and I think more importantly to the president, you know, that's the enemy of controlling the virus, distributing the vaccine, and launching a robust recovery. So, again, I think the way to think of this is, is, is less kind of top-down, more bottom-up. So let's take an area where we disagree, where, where Republicans would take this out of the plan, state and local, state and local assistance. Now, states and localities, they have to budget, they have to balance their budget every year. They cannot run deficits. We've already seen them laying off well over a million workers disproportionately in education. So if we're going to reopen the schools, if we're going to control the virus and distribute the vaccine, we, if we're going to make sure that we not only rehire educators, but protect other public sector workers, cops, firefighters, those in public safety, we, I, I think it, you know, it's glaringly obvious to the president that we need uh, state and local relief. Uh, another uh, example, making the child tax credit, this is a refundable tax credit that goes to low-income people. You talked about income levels. This plan, which is in our plan, it's not in the, in the Republicans' offer, this plan, it's $120 billion, this cuts the child poverty rate in half. Now, that's some pretty impressive targeting. Now, I know what you're alluding to is the direct impact payments or the rebate checks, and, and those do go up to families in the middle class. But, you know, newsflash, uh, those families have also been experiencing, you know, really very pressing uh, economic hardships, not, not just uh, uh, around, around rent or mortgages, but it also around job loss, around wage loss, and they need help, too. And, and that's also in the plan. So, Jared, today, President Biden said he thinks he will get some Republicans to vote for this package. But I guess the question is, will he get 10 Republicans to vote for the package or will he get a handful so that the White House can say that it passed with bipartisan support, but that you would still need to use budget reconciliation as a tool to actually get it across the finish line? Well, first of all, uh, you just made a point that eludes a lot of people, which is reconciliation doesn't mean no Republicans join the plan. And in fact, there have been many examples throughout history where reconciliation has actually been bipartisan. Um, somebody pointed out to me yesterday that the Child Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, passed on reconciliation with votes from both sides. So I think that that's something to keep in mind. I think that when it comes to sort of political nose counting, I'm just not the person you want to talk to about it. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking much more about uh, the magnitude of the package. And, and, but that is, that is, you know, key to the politics. I mean, basically, the president has been open. And, you know, by the way, this didn't start a couple of days ago. We've been talking to Republicans for weeks. And by the way, a lot of those Republicans were pushing some of the very checks that you're not hearing folks criticize. And there's, uh, as I said, there's a lot of common ground when it comes to virus control, when it comes to helping businesses. So I think the, the, the key thing there is that the president is willing to exchange information and ideas in any way that accomplishes the goals he's set out for this package, not moving quickly and not moving with the force to finally put this virus behind this and launch this recovery, that's the part that's in, uh, you know, not acceptable to him. But if anybody has any better ideas on how to get there more quickly, of course, you know, not only is he willing to listen to them, but he is listening to them. So would you say that talks are actually going more productively behind the scenes than maybe these public statements would, would seem to signal? I don't know enough about behind the scenes to really, uh, you know, confirm that. But if you listen to statements that 
Now, Susan Collins, for example, said coming out of the meeting that they had the other night, she was echoing a lot of the points that I've been making here today, which is that both sides share the urgency of the moment. Now, you know, I don't know that she speaks for the whole caucus, but uh, uh, I think that those folks were were, were bargaining in, in, in good faith in that meeting. And I think the difference there is, are you willing to go far enough to uh, to meet the demands of the moment? So again, the American Rescue Plan is, is not calibrated from the top down. You didn't start with 1.9 trillion and say, okay, let's fill in, see how we get there. It's, cal it's calibrated from the bottom up. What will it cost to reopen schools? What will it cost to provide the relief to not just low-income families, as I mentioned with the child tax credit, but middle-income families with the direct income payments? What will it take to control the virus and distribute the vaccine? And, it, and if, you, if you sum up the, uh, the costs involved in, in that the full spate of measures that it will take to get this economy back on track and to put this virus behind it, you end up with the American Rescue Plan from our perspective. Now, I have not seen a convincing argument that said that says you end up accomplishing those same goals for uh, you know one half or one third of that. Uh, and, and, and I think what the president is trying to say is that um, f folks need to uh, come at this from that perspective, not from a top line perspective. You spend two, we want to spend one more from a perspective of what will it take to get the job done? That's our plan. You know, Jared, you mentioned that you're not focused on uh, reconciliation and political nose counting and how you actually get to the votes, but, but which avenue you do choose to get this passed does impact what parts of the president's agenda on other issues you can actually pursue as well, because reconciliation is not an unlimited tool. You get two shots at it this year, um, and you'll get one shot at it in future years if there's a budget passed then too. And so if you choose to use reconciliation for COVID relief, uh, I'm curious how the administration would choose to use its second opportunity at reconciliation. Is that to expand the public option and to pursue some sort of broader health care policy? Or is it for the Build Back Better infrastructure and clean energy agenda? Which do you choose? Well, it's yeah, no, it's interesting you should say infrastructure. Um, because uh, while there is uh, infrastructure, is obviously something that President Biden has worked on his whole career. Um, because we've been focused on the rescue plan, we haven't talked a lot about some of our plans in that regard, although the president has certainly leaned into those investments in the clean energy space. So I know you asked a political question. Let me get to that. I remember testifying in Congress a couple of years ago, and it was about the infrastructure deficit in this country, which is, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a very, a very deep one in terms of uh, public investment in capital goods and public goods. And after that, uh, and I was quite critical of the Trump administration's lack of an infrastructure plan. And after that testimony, two Republicans, I'm not going to name them because it was a private uh, conversation, pulled me aside and said, we really want to do infrastructure too, but the president doesn't have a plan. So when we're talking about infrastructure, clean energy, childcare, many of the elements of the building back agenda, it is not at all obvious to me that that has to go the route of reconciliation. And if we're talking about infrastructure, it's actually pretty obvious to me that we, we probably won't. 
So I wouldn't be so quick to assume that the uh, kind of partisanship would be uh, uh, as deep as maybe folks might think in some of those areas. And again, you know, President Biden really is bringing a different climate in terms of political negotiations than existed in this town for the past four years. And while there were definitely differences in that discussion the other night in the American Rescue Plan, I've talked about some of them already, there was a spirit of shared urgency. And that's going to, I believe that's going to convey over to the discussion about infrastructure, about climate, about the care agenda, about health care and education. So I'm, I'm, you know, at least until proven otherwise, I'm optimistic. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I had a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was a CBO report that we referenced earlier that said that the U.S. economy would get back to pre-pandemic growth by the middle of this year, uh, not pre-pandemic unemployment until 2024. Uh, but each party seems to be reading that in a different way. Republicans say it's proof that there doesn't need to be some sort of large rescue package. But you and Secretary Yellen have both said that it underscores the need for this urgency. Um, but casting the CBO report aside, I'm just curious what data set you are using internally at the White House since the CEA is what is supposed to inform the president, the White House and policymaking. What data set internally are you using and what does it tell you about when exactly the U.S. economy is going to get back to pre-COVID levels? That's a great question. The answer is not data set, data sets, uh, plural. <laughs> I've been perusing as my colleague Heather Boucher as well uh, and, and, and the team have been perusing um, at least 20 different forecasts, and each one has you know, probably 10 variables at least in it. So my head is full of this noise. <laughs> now, CBO came out yesterday uh, with a forecast that was pretty much around what you'd see kind of in the mainstream if you looked at what's out there. Uh, a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, teams are, are, are higher than that, a few are lower. But I think the key thing there from our perspective, and you got into this in your question, is what do these, what do these expectations inform us about our plan? Now, um, the unemployment rate uh, in, in the CBO projections that came out uh, yesterday, that's going to remain higher than the pre-crisis projections until 2024. Now, it's important to recognize that CBO included the December relief plan, but of course it doesn't include our plan because that's not... Uh, you know what they do. Our plan is uh, not legislated yet. But that means that millions of people will be unemployed for years after this health threat uh, is behind us unless we take action now. 
if we look at the GDP from the uh, from the CBO report, um, in fact, uh, you, you are correct uh, the way you put it about growth rates, but the level of GDP doesn't get back to its potential until 2025, unless we implement the American Rescue Plan, which pulls both full employment forward by a year and hitting a potential G GDP forward by, by more than that. So part one is that the economy will not get back to full employment nearly quickly enough uh, without this plan. Part two is that you can't judge our plan, our success. In fact, I would argue um, uh, this for you know, pretty much everything we're going to be trying to do in this administration simply by looking at GDP, not even by looking at the unemployment rate. Those things are necessary, but they are not sufficient. Necessary, but insufficient. And what do I mean by insufficient? I mean insufficient to reach those in the bottom leg of the K in this K-shaped recovery. For far too many people, GDP growth has been a spectator sport for decades on end, and our policies have to recreate the connective tissue so that economic growth generates broadly shared prosperity and racial equity. And that's what this rescue plan is about, and that's what Building Back Better will be about. And that's a good segue, Jared, to an audience question that I wanted to get to before my final question for you, which is uh, from Lakeisha Williams. She's a senior payroll analyst at Oasis Petroleum, and she asks, what are the targeted goals of the new administration to bridge the gap between Wall Street and Main Street? Uh, I know we could probably have a 30-minute conversation of our own just about that question, um, but I'm curious, sitting here today, if you had a short punch list of how the administration would plan to tackle that, what would it be? Yeah, you know, that's a great question from Lakeisha. Um, I think the problem is is quite deep and quite multifaceted. So while, you know, the, the short punch list, I do have a, a punch list on how short it is. Um, I, I think the best way to speak about that is in terms of kind of the categories that do precisely what I said in my last answer to you, Kayla, which is to how do you how do you rebuild the architecture that used to link GDP growth uh, to uh, middle class prosperity for many people, but fa in fact never linked GDP growth to the prosperity of uh, of persons and communities of color. And that is a multifaceted agenda. It involves making sure that people have access to health care, to child care. It makes sure that, uh, that, that exclusionary zoning in housing is absolutely a thing of the past. It makes sure that every kid can achieve their potential by accessing the quality education they need and not just K through five or eight or 12, but through college and grad school. That's an opportunity agenda. It's an agenda that um, uh, allows people to realize their economic potential in a way that they've been blocked for years because of racial discrimination, it's been systemic, and because of the kind of disconnections between, say, Wall Street and the rest of the economy that's implicit in Lakeisha's question. At the same time, if we don't address uh, some of the structural economic problems that have really hurt this, uh, the U.S. economy's resiliency, uh, it'll be much harder to get there. So climate change. Climate change is a massive cost, not just on the future economy, but on the current economy. So uh, the Biden plan is uh, uh, goes goes very very deep in that direction. And again, this is the top level punch list. There are many things that that come underneath that. Standing up at access, an accessible childcare uh, sector is another is another part of that agenda. So that's just some of the ideas that I think help 
help rebuild that connective tissue. And you're certainly going to have your work cut out for you there, Jared. But I'm I'm thinking in my final question, uh, I'm recalling the confirmation hearing for Tony Blinken for Secretary of State, where he praised the Trump administration's policy on China. Uh, he praised the Abraham Accords, uh, peace deals in the Middle East, and said that a lot of those things he wanted to keep intact. And so I'm wondering from an economic perspective, as you're talking about this wholesale structural rebuilding of the American economy, are there any policies from the tr- Trump administration that you think are positive legacies that you think we should keep? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think there's one that uh, I'm not quite sure how to discuss it in the context of the Trump. I think one of the things we learned in the Trump economy, as you know, Kayla, we probably talked about this on the station, I've been extremely critical of the Trump tax cuts. Uh, and, and my main critique, as you know, is that they just shifted you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to folks who are already doing great at the top of the scale, very much exacerbating the inequality that I talked about. But at the same time, they did create a certain fiscal pressure. And in tandem with the uh, patience by the Federal Reserve to kind of test the boundaries of some of the metrics that economists used to think uh, couldn't be violated. If we went below 6%, unemployment would start, uh, I mean, inflation would start spiraling. And that was, if we went below 5% unemployment, inflation would spiral, and then it was 4%. Well, I think the combination of pro-cyclical fiscal policy and uh, a data-driven Federal Reserve um, led, uh, helped, uh, helped de- um, deliver an understanding to economists that the way to that, that we can run a hotter uh, labor market than we thought, we can run a hotter economy than we thought. And from the racial equity standpoint, that's so important to uh, the, the Biden-Harris team, that's critical to providing the kind of opportunities that I was talking about a second ago in answer uh, to Lakeisha's to question. It, it's when you get the unemployment rate down to the levels that prevailed pre-crisis that you begin to see opportunities develop for people who are otherwise left behind. So I would say, you know, Trump's fiscal, uh, Trump, Trump's foot on the fiscal accelerated, uh, accelerator was, you know, really quite terrible in my view from a distributional standpoint. But from the perspective of of learning lessons about how hot we can run this economy, actually very important. All right. We'll keep that lesson in mind as uh, hopefully the economy returns to growth this year. For now, Jared, we so appreciate your time today. Jared Bernstein is a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. We are joined now by Josh Bolton, who's the president of the Business Roundtable, for the view from corporate America. In the course of the last year working from home, I think we've done Zooms from my attic, my home office, my backyard, and I'd now like to welcome you into my living room as well. Um, I want to get your reaction to uh, Jared's comments on stimulus, first and foremost, um, where he talked about uh, this desire to hold firm that whittling down is the enemy uh, and essentially go big or go home. How realistic do you think that is? Just first, thanks for thanks for having us all to your living room. Um, on the on the uh, the issue that you were discussing with Jared on whittling down um, the uh, the Biden plan, that's not where the business community is. What uh, what our members are saying is that they are they are supporting what. Uh, the Biden administration and what Jared was saying on um, the urgency of 
providing the rescue that's needed, first, to get the pandemic under control, and second, to support the most vulnerable through the tough economic times that the pandemic has created. Um, so uh, we're, for, we're for whittling up on those elements of it. Uh, but to the extent that the administration has, uh, has tried to move into their COVID package, things that don't address, that aren't in, uh, designed to address the immediate crisis and are making it difficult to get bipartisan support for this urgently needed package, uh, we think they ought to be flexible about putting that stuff aside and taking it up later. But Josh, put the urgency into perspective because the CARES Act, when it passed in March, was $2.2 trillion. The American Rescue Plan is $1.9 trillion. The previous package was passed at a time when the entire economy was at a standstill and it passed with full bipartisan support. Now, of course, we were at a point where um, large swaths of the economy are open. Yes, the pandemic is still requiring a lot of people to work from home. It has slowed growth. It has slowed a lot of contracts. Um, but but there is a package that was just passed at the end of last year that is trickling into the system right now. So I'm just curious on a scale of one to 10, how you would grade the urgency of this moment. Sure, it is an urgent moment, but how does it compare to the times in the past year uh, where lawmakers rose to the occasion and passed these packages? Um, well, it's not it's not the the very deeply uh, deep crisis situation we were facing at the front end of the pandemic, but the pandemic is still with us. So I'd I'd put the urgency at the at the high end of the scale. But the urgency is with respect to getting the pandemic under control and supporting the vulnerable while while that process go, uh, keeps underway over the course of the, of the coming months. And so that's what we're, as, a, uh, as representatives of the business community, that's what we're putting our weight behind is get the money out there for the vaccines and for the testing and for the public health workers um, that are gonna, gonna help get the pandemic under control and then take care of the people who uh, who have been just devastated by uh, by the pandemic um, while while we while we uh, head toward a uh, what looks like it can be a, a robust recovery. People today can spend half their lives over fifty, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. One of the elements in the packages we were just discussing with Jared is a proposal to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders, who will chair the Budget Committee, um, has suggested that there is a CBO report forthcoming that will show there will be a deficit impact from the minimum wage that will uh, potentially allow Democrats to include that uh, as part of uh, their bill that would potentially pass on a party line. But I'm curious if you buy that argument that raising the minimum wage would make people less dependent on the social safety net and ultimately have a positive impact on the federal deficit? 
Well, the business roundtable has been in favor of raising the minimum wage for some time. Seven, $7.25 is clearly too low. Um, but uh, we're skeptical about the argument that this is the moment to, uh, to proceed to push through the Congress um, on what would have to be a partisan basis uh, and a, uh, a large increase in the minimum wage. The, um, you know, the, the members of my organization, the Business Roundtable, are the CEOs of America's largest companies. By and large, uh, most of them already pay at least $15 an hour. The folks whom an increase in the minimum wage most directly affects are the small businesses around this country, and they are the ones who have been most devastated uh, by the pandemic, who are, who are flat on their back, many hundreds of thousands out of business completely, but many just barely hanging on. Um, and we want to get them back going again. I mean, it's it's in the, the country's interest. It's in the interest of our businesses because uh, for America's large corporations, those small businesses are our customers and suppliers. And so uh, pushing through a minimum wage increase that especially in the short run can uh can be very damaging to small business unless it's unless it's crafted in a way that takes into account regional differences that has uh, that has appropriate carve outs for small businesses um, that that'll take a lot of time to negotiate and and that's why we think it's this package is not the right place to do that um, this package ought to be put through on a bipartisan basis and focus on ending the pandemic and helping people make it through in the meantime. As the political prognosticator that you are, what do you think the odds are that a bipartisan deal can be reached that would pass with 60 votes and not be pursued through a partisan process instead? Uh, it's looking tough, Kayla, but uh, it's not impossible. Uh, Jared was right. Uh, rec the reconciliation process, if that's the, the way the administration, administration and the leadership decide they need to go, uh, even the reconciliation process does not need to be partisan. I was, I was part of the George W. Bush administration, which in 2001 put through a major tax cut bill uh, with the support, overwhelming support of the Republicans in uh, in Congress and in the Senate, the support of 12 Democrats. So reconciliation doesn't mean uh, uh, that it's uh, that it's a partisan measure, um, but I think they've got a fair amount of work to do uh, to get uh, to get Republicans on board. And taking out of their proposal, um, put aside the issue of, of the top line, and I, I thought Jared made, made good points about um, it shouldn't just be I propose X, uh, you propose half X, let's end up at 0.6X. Uh, what they ought to focus on is the very necessary measures that uh, can bring an end to the pandemic and support the vulnerable in the meantime. Um, I want to move on to talk about the priorities more broadly of uh, some of the Business Roundtable member companies. I remember talking to you at the end of last year, and you were talking about how important a federal mask mandate would be for companies who are otherwise charged with enforcing mask mandates uh, on their own premises and oftentimes getting significant pushback from their customers in the process. In the days, and I guess it's been 
a little uh, two weeks exactly, actually, um, since the uh, mask mandate that the Biden administration signed has been into effect. Has there been a noticeable impact on your companies and and the behavior of their customers in in terms of complying with this? Um, I haven't I haven't gotten reports of that so far, but it, it's directionally absolutely right that uh, that the federal government and the president personally. Uh, is showing very welcome leadership on the uh, the safety measures that all of us need to adopt during the course of the pandemic. Um, that means masking and distancing. They work. Uh, all of our members are doing their best to promote that uh, within their own workplaces, in their shops, and so on. And so to have the president step up and mandate the mask wearing and public transportation and on uh, in federal facilities, uh, we're 100% behind that. That's the right thing to do. It's, it's setting the right tone for the country, uh, and our members appreciate it. And on the agenda more broadly, it's been uh, unmistakable that over the last 12 months, the priorities of the Business Roundtable have shifted quite substantially. At the beginning of the Trump administration, the priorities were tax reform, deregulation, uh, and of course, uh, some free trade elements in there as well. In the last 12 months, the agenda has been refashioned to include that federal mask mandate, uh, to include some immigration priorities, some climate priorities. Uh, and uh, supporting an increase in the minimum wage uh, and some other elements that are unmistakably more reflective of the Biden administration's agenda as well. And so I'm wondering if you could just take me back to the drafting process and how you how you fashion your priorities. Is it truly that the priorities of these companies have changed in the last 12 months or is it that, um, you know, you're looking at the reality of engaging with an administration that has a completely different policy slate than the one that you engaged with for the last four years? Um, Kayla, not, not quite either one of those. All of the things you just mentioned, um, immigration, trade, uh, uh, some other items that are high on our priority list, including uh, worker training and infrastructure investment. All of those things were on the uh, uh, our members' priority lists during the Trump administration. But there, there was the priority and the opportunity uh, during the Trump administration to reform our corporate tax code in a way that made it competitive for companies to operate in and out of the United States. And on, and on this, I, I have a strong disagreement with, uh, with Jared Bernstein. Uh, but where we will have agreement is on a number of these other agenda items that, uh, that now come front and center, um, that they've been priorities for a lot of our members for some time. And now with the new administration, there's an opportunity to pursue them. Uh, Jared mentioned infrastructure investment. Uh, that, that's a very big deal for the country uh, and strongly supported by members of the Business Roundtable. We'd like to see it funded in a way that is sustainable, meaning that the, uh, the people who are taking advantage of those infrastructure investments uh, help defray the cost of that. Um, so there are, there are political hurdles to be met on all of them. Um, not least on uh, controversial issues like Im immigration. Uh, but we're encouraged about the many items on our priority list 
which also are on the new administration's priority list. First thing we got to do is get past the pandemic. But uh, once we start to look beyond that, there's, uh, there's a lot of reason for optimism about alignment on priorities. And on the engagement with the administration, obviously the Trump administration um, valued the feedback from corporate America and held a seat at the table for um, members of some of the, the country and the, the world's largest companies. But I'm wondering where corporate America is in the hierarchy of feedback for the Biden administration and how your engagement and dialogue with the Biden administration looks different from your engagement with President Trump? Well, you'd, you'd have to ask them where, where we stand in the priority. From, from our perspective, they've been terrific. Uh, there's been uh, a very high level of engagement, outreach, consultation, uh, candidly in, in, uh, in ways that were um, much more extensive and um, deeper than, uh, than we experienced even at the outset of the Trump administration. Um, so uh, very well launched from the standpoint of the Biden administration on um, giving the business community the, uh, the signal that, yes, they, uh, they're interested in the business community's views. Now, we're not going to agree on everything. Uh, but we, at this point, we feel very comfortable that we uh, we have the communications channels open, and there are people that are uh, senior people in the Biden administration who are interested, want to hear from us, and will take our views into account. We're encouraged by that. That was Josh Bolton, president and CEO of the Business Roundtable, speaking to me at CNBC's Capital Exchange on February third, twenty twenty one. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For more information about upcoming CNBC events and how you can join us, visit CNBCEvents.com. I'm Kayla Tausche. Thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.